Let's take our Bibles now, go to the book of Romans chapter number 6. Romans chapter number 6. We've had a lot of things going on this morning, so we're running just a little bit behind time, but I will do the best that I can to um, to stay on track and make good use of our time here this morning. Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse number 15. This is, by the way, a very important passage of Scripture for me. I know I've shared my testimony that I went through a time period. I got right with the Lord just before I turned 20. And uh, shortly after getting right with the Lord and experiencing a lot of spiritual, just wonderful changes in my life, it's like the, the devil just kind of pulled the rug out from underneath me and I went through over a year of struggling with the assurance of my salvation. And so it was a very confusing time, and the Lord just drove me into the Word of God for answers. And this is a passage of Scripture that meant a lot to me in helping me gain assurance of my salvation. And uh, it's in verse number 16 of Romans chapter 6. The Bible says, Know ye not, excuse me, verse 15, What then shall we sin, because we are not under the law, but under grace? You know, some people that say, us Baptists that teach once saved, always saved, that, oh, you're just telling people they've got a license to sin. Listen, that's not, that's, that's a bunch of nonsense. I believe in eternal security. If you're saved, you're, you're saved forever. And if you're saved, we're on our way to heaven. But listen, that doesn't mean that we can sin as much as we want because if you still have that desire and you want to sin and you don't care about doing right, then there's a good chance you didn't get the real deal to begin with. To the true child of God that's been regenerated, it's not you get to, you, you can sin more than you want because you've got Jesus living inside of you who wants to do right. Doesn't mean you don't have a struggle with the old man, but uh, certainly to say that we're saved eternally, that means we can do anything that we want. That is definitely a misrepresentation. Verse number 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? I guess we could say the choice is yours. You can choose righteousness and obedience, or you can continue in sin and disobedience. Now look at verse number 17. This is where my message will come from this morning. But God be thanked that ye were, past tense, the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. That term doctrine appears in verse number 17, and I'd like to preach this morning on the subject, meaningful doctrines of salvation. Let's ask the Lord's blessings on the message this morning. Lord, thank you for your presence here this morning. Thank you for the singing. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege to open up the Bible and read the very words of God. May we never take that for granted. Thank you, Lord, for the Sunday school hour, the things that you taught us and the ways that you've helped us. We pray now for this hour that we are together, God, that we would have your blessings upon it. 
Lord, take this message and use it in the hearts of this congregation. Uh, speak to us in no uncertain terms. May we be, uh, may we hear your voice clearly and may we see our needs and Lord, help every need that's here today. If someone's here that's not saved, Lord, it sure would be a, a blessing to them and a joy to us for you to save them. Lord, someone here that's backslidden, not living right, perhaps maybe something would be said today that would help them to get their hearts right with you. And then, Lord, people who are saved and walking with you that just maybe need encouragement, just, just need some joy back in their life, we pray that these truths would be used of you to help those people as well. You know the needs. We pray that you'd meet each and every one. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, by way of introduction, I want to talk about what is doctrine and why is it important. The Bible says in Proverbs 4, verse number 2, For I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. Solomon said to his son, I give you good doctrine, which indicates that not all doctrine is good. There's no doubt some bad doctrine that's out there. I listened to the radio yesterday and I heard some bad doctrine. Some people trying to tell us that when our loved ones in Christ die, that they don't go to heaven. That's bad doctrine. And I heard the scriptures that they use and I wanted to, I wanted to yell into the radio, read the next verse, or that's not what that's saying, and so forth, because you can take a lot of scripture and you can twist it and make it teach whatever you want it to teach. There's good doctrine and there's bad doctrine. In John 7, verse number 17, this is red letters in my Bible, where Jesus said, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. You know, the best way to have discernment is to live for God. If you got sin in your life, I got news for you, you are clouding your own discernment. There's a lot of things that uh, the Lord wants to show you and guide you and direct you, and He's speaking but when we have sin in our life, we're not hearing His voice. We're more, we're more apt to hear the voice of the counterfeiter, the devil himself. I've been around believers that are just as saved as anybody else, but every time that the Holy Spirit is saying zig, they zag. Whenever the Holy Spirit says zag, they zig. And the reason being is because they're not walking with the Lord and their discernment has been clouded. Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. You know what that verse is telling us as believers, every single one of us need to know the doctrines of the Word of God for ourselves. Brother Andrew helped with Salt and Light Radio this past Thursday, and I was very thankful for his help. We talked about the need and the place for apologetics in modern Christianity. What is apologetics? It's, based, it's just simply taking the Word of God and showing and demonstrating the, the not just the what we believe, but the why we believe it. 
I guarantee you, I'm preaching to many people in this congregation today that you may believe the right things, but you don't have any Bible clue as to why you believe what you believe. Some would say, well, I've just always been a Baptist, or that's what my pastor teaches, or that that was good enough for grandma, that's good enough for me. Listen, that is not Bible apologetics. Uh, That is just, that's tradition. What we all need is we need to know what thus saith the Lord, because that is our grounding. And I guarantee you, there are winds of doctrine that blow all over the place. Yesterday and Friday were windy days. I mean, if you didn't have something nailed down, it was going to blow around, wasn't it? I went to return something, and I had in the back hatch of my car, I'd put the receipt on top of it. And so when I went to take it into the store, the receipt was gone. And I just assumed that the wind must have blown it away. And I come home and find it on the kitchen table. <laughs> Ladies of my house were very windy. <laughs> but I was just sure because the wind was blowing that it had, I mean, just the wind's blowing everywhere. There are doctrines that blow everywhere, and especially in the modern church in America today, the average believer. Why do you think that so many people have flooded the contemporary churches? I'll tell you why, because they don't know the Word of God for themselves. Well, I like that. That that preacher makes me feel good. I like their music, as if music is the most important part of a church worship service. Folks, it's not. The Word of God is the most important part. I'm not minimizing the value of music. Music is powerful. But you notice that the modern church, it's music, 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 music. And oh, let's throw a little psychological message in there to make people feel good about their self-esteem and so forth. And Christians just flood to that. I, I know of a proprietor downtown who made it, made a statement to my wife. He said, uh, uh, every Sunday, you know, they've got these, um, uh, where they brew beer downtown in Statesville. And he said, these places are full on Sunday afternoon and they're full of a particular church people when church gets out. Now, to keep you from being uncomfortable, I'm not going to mention what that church is. But it's sure tempting. But but here's here's a guy that's not even a fundamental Bible-believing King James Baptist. And he said, you know what, I know when that church lets out because these beer joints on Sunday afternoon, they fill up. You know what I say to that? That's sad. And there's a reason, because people are being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. We need to be grounded. We don't need to be spiritual babies. We need to be spiritual soldiers who know what our commander-in-chief has to say. How about Titus chapter number 2, verse number 1? But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Sound, meaning There's a firm foundation upon which to build our lives. There are some meaningful doctrines of salvation in the Bible. I can't talk about all of them this morning, but I want to talk about four of them. 
And the first one is found in 1 Peter chapter number 1. Hold your place in Romans. We're going to be back there. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 18. The first doctrine that's meaningful is the doctrine of redemption. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 18, the Bible says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. You know what Peter's saying. He says, it's not about your religion. It's not about what you can do. But he says in verse number 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Hey, the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed upon Calvary's cross, that is our redemption. Now, what exactly do we mean? What does redemption mean? Webster's 1828 Dictionary puts it like this. It's the repurchase of captured goods or prisoners. The act of procuring the deliverance of persons or things from the possession and power of captors by the payment of an equivalent. Secondly, it's the deliverance from bondage, distress, or from liability to any evil or forfeiture either by money, labor, or other means. Notice that Webster's talks about not only bondage, but he talks about the power, the power of our captor. Our text in Romans chapter 6 that we started out with, says that ye were the servants of sin. Do you know that before we got saved, that we were in bondage as slaves to sin? Bondage. Nobody wants to be in bondage. And yet sin produces the most bondage of any other element since the beginning of man. Jesus said in John chapter number 8 and verse 34, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Verse 36, He said, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Hey, thank God for the doctrine of redemption that Jesus Christ shed His precious blood on Calvary's cross to buy us back from our bondage from the power of sin. I read a story about a little orphan boy who lived with his grandmother. Time passed on, his grandmother's house caught on fire. In that fire, his grandmother died. And while the fire was burning and the boy is trapped on the second a story, a man climbed up a hot metal drain pipe in order to rescue this little orphan boy. Later, after the, the fire and after the grandmother's funeral, there was a court hearing to try to determine who would get custody of this little boy. There were all kinds of peoples. There were neighbors and there were distant uncles that all made their case as to why the orphan boy should come and live with them. About that time, a man entered the courtroom and he walked up to the judge. He pulled his hands out of his pocket and he showed scarred hands that were burnt from that hot drain pipe. And the question was resolved. The man got custody 
of that little boy. He paid, he risked his life in order to buy, to pay for that, uh, for custody over that little boy. I'm sure that many of you have heard the story about the little boy who built a sailboat. As he was sailing, as he was sailing that boat there in the creek, that sailboat got away from him and it started going down with the, 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 the flow of the creek and he ran along the creek bank trying to get that little boat and he couldn't keep up with the current until pretty soon that little sailboat got out of sight. Several weeks later, he's in town and he looks at this store window and inside this store, he sees his little sailboat. And so he goes in and he sees that there's a price tag of $10 on this sailboat. And he says to the man, he says, he says, hey, mister, that's my sailboat. And the man says, no, it isn't. I just bought it yesterday from someone and uh, I paid for this sailboat. If you want the sailboat, you're going to have to buy it. The boy goes home and he gets his piggy bank out and he breaks it open and he, he, he scrounges up all the money that he could and finally he has enough and he goes back into town and he buys that sailboat. And as he's walking out the door of the store, he's looking at his sailboat and he says, I made you. I lost you. But now you're mine again. You know what we have there? We have a picture of redemption. Listen, God created us and He put us in the Garden of Eden in a perfect environment and He lost us because of sin. But then He paid the price and He bought us back by the price of Calvary's cross. And now those of us that are saved can say that we belong to Him. 1 Corinthians 6, verse number 20 says, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Believer, we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are no longer your own. Oh, how many believers say that they're saved, but they don't live their life as if they belong to another. They live their life as if they belong to themselves. Redemption is a wonderful, meaningful doctrine of salvation. Secondly, go back to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3 and verse number 24. We'll take a look at the meaningful doctrine called justification. Justification. It says in Romans 3.24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice how that justification and redemption just go hand in hand. Webster's 1828 talks about justification as the remission of sin and absolution from guilt and punishment. An act of free grace by which God pardons the sinner and accepts him as righteous on account of the atonement of Christ. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men. That's talking about Adam. Because of Adam's offense, condemnation passed on to all of us. But praise the Lord, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Once again, the redemption, the blood of Jesus Christ, is what justifies us in the sight of God. Justification is a legal term. 
that can be described by a scale. I'm sure that many of you have seen in a courthouse, in a courtroom I should say, that right behind the judge oftentimes you'll see a lady holding a scale and a blindfold over her eyes. And that scale represents the law and it represents justification. Hey, if a certain crime is is committed, then there has to be an equal payment for that crime in order for justification to take place. In the same sense, our sins carry a certain weight. How many people do I know who have their their scales weighted down by the sin in their life and they think that they can even out those scales with their own good works? You know what? The scale... You talk about sin is heavy lead plates that just weigh that down. And when we try to justify ourselves with our own works, it's like putting feathers on the other side. You're never going to put enough feathers in order to even budge the scale. But I'll tell you what will budge the scale. The payment that God accepts is the payment of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. Because of our sin, the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus took our payment, He took our punishment, and He bore it on Calvary's cross. And when we receive Him, praise the Lord, we become justified in the sight of God. Someone once said that the term justification or justified is just as if I'd never sinned. Well, That is true, but only in a legal sense. I hope you understand that. Listen, sin, uh, every sin that you ever committed, you're going to carry it in your memory for the rest of your life. But you don't have to live based on your memory. You can live your life based upon God's memory. And in God's courtroom, when God looks at our sin account, and he sees stamped right over the top of it, paid in full, then he's never going to hold us uh, accountable for those sins because Jesus Christ paid the price. It's a legal term and it is a meaningful doctrine. Number three, look at verse number 25 of Romans 3. The third one is a word that many believers are not familiar with, and it's the term propitiation. Verse 25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. What is propitiation? Webster's 1828 talks about propitious as this, to be disposed, to be gracious or merciful, ready to forgive sins and bestow blessings. Number two, to be favorable as a propitious season. You know what? There are propitious seasons, are there not? Usually around here, it's spring or fall, right? Usually not February. There are times when it's just not very favorable. Do you know that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, that God can look down upon us sinners with favor and with blessings and with mercy. 
That is a wonderful, blessed doctrine of the Bible. Now, in order for this to be meaningful to us, then we must first recognize the holiness of God and His wrath towards sinners. Now, that's a truth that is often neglected and left out in the modern contemporary Christian church in America today. They'll tell people about the love of God. They'll tell people that, oh, God loves you just the way that you are and so forth, but they don't tell the whole story. The bottom line is, God is a holy God. And by the way, God never said, be ye happy, for I am happy. You know what God said? He said, be ye holy, for I am holy. And the average believer in America today have been told time and time again, over and over, that God wants you to be happy. And you know what? They I'm not saying that God doesn't desire our happiness, but happiness is a byproduct of holiness. It's not the the it's not the end all be all. And I know people who say that they are believers that live in sinful lifestyles, live in adultery and fornication, and the list could go on and on and on, and they do it because it makes them happy, and they think that God's okay with it because I'm okay with it. I don't care how you feel about something. If the Word of God says something is sinful, you need to get it right because it's wickedness in the sight of God. God's going to judge that sin. God is a holy God. Listen to what Romans 1.18 says. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. I don't get it, folks. I don't get how people can say that they're saved and live in unrighteousness and say, I'm okay. I'm not unhappy. God must be blessing this because it's for my own happiness. I'll tell you what, you've been sold a bill of goods by Satan himself. Say, well, God hasn't gotten me yet. Oh, be not deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever a man soweth that shall he also reap. But God loves me and He wants me to be happy. Hey, before you can ever experience the love of God, you first got to realize and recognize that God is a God of wrath and God hates sin. And by the way, I'm not going to scrub it up for you. If you are a sinner, then God is angry at you. You know, it's amazing. You go back not too many years ago, every preacher was saying what I just said. Nowadays you say it and people are going, oh, I can't believe he said that. That's so shocking. Not very many years ago, if a preacher didn't tell you that, he wasn't even considered a preacher. God hates sin and if you're a sinner, He's angry at you. I'm not saying that. I'm not trying to be mean-spirited. 
I'm trying to warn you because you're headed off of a cliff into destruction. I'm not angry. I'm concerned. Listen, I, I, I wouldn't love you at all if I didn't tell you the truth. And if I sugarcoat it, then I, then I, that's not love and compassion. Hey, we're living in a day and age where somebody needs to be shook up a little bit over sin. Somebody needs to realize that God is not going to take your sin lying down for the rest of your life. At some point, God is going to show and demonstrate His anger. But thank God if we recognize the holiness of God, that God, that we were under the wrath of God when we get saved, boy, that propitiation is even more meaningful. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, to know that I was on the outs with God, that God was angry at me for just cause. You know, I mentioned just a little while ago about doubting my my salvation and struggling with assurance. Man, I was trying to live for God and everything. I knew my heart was right and I knew that God had done something in my life. But boy, I just I just doubted and I struggled. And you know, I finally, after a year of that, I got to the point where I just thought, Lord, I can't keep struggling with this. I know what the Bible says. I'm not doubting your word. The only thing that I'm doubting is my own heart. I know I can be deceived. I know I can deceive myself. And so finally, I just got to the point where I said, you know what, Lord? If you put me in hell, then you are still good because I deserve to go to hell. All of the things that I have done, knowing better, and I did it anyways. If you put me in a devil's hell, you will still be just, you will be good, you will be right, and I will get exactly what I deserve. But I said, God, if you put me in hell, I'm going to go to hell trusting Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross and nothing else. What have I got to lose? If I go to, if he puts me in hell, that's what I, that's what I deserve to begin with. And you know, it wasn't until I came to that point when I kept trying to figure it out on my own and I kept trying to create my own assurance that God finally started giving me that assurance. Is that, it's as if he was saying, that's where I'm trying to get you. That's what I'm trying to get you to see, son. That if I save you, it's because of my goodness, not because you have done anything to deserve it. I'll tell you what, when you get to that point in your life and you can recognize that the Bible teaches that God now looks down upon us with favor and blessings, that's a meaningful doctrine. In 1 John 2.2, it says, that He, speaking of Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There is enough propitiation in the blood of Jesus Christ to save everybody in the world. Sorry, John Calvin, you're wrong. There's enough for everybody, even the whosoever wills, praise the Lord. 
1 John 4, verse number 10, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What a wonderful, meaningful doctrine is propitiation. And then the last one, number four, is found in Romans chapter 8. And that is the meaningful doctrine of adoption. Now, Brother Ben and Sister Jessica know a thing or two about adoption. They adopted a little verily. How long has it been, Brother Ben? Fourteen months ago. What a precious little girl that they adopted and the Lord gave them. They know a thing or two about adoption, but let's read what the Scripture says, and then let's find out a little bit about what it means. Romans 8, verse 15 says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That term Abba is a Jewish term of endearment. It would be like us saying daddy. You know, when you talk about your father and you refer to your daddy, that's a term of endearment. And so that's why because of this spirit of adoption, we can cry with this dependence on this is, this is my daddy who looks down upon me as his son. Now, in order for us to understand the meaningfulness of the doctrine of adoption, we've got to put it in its proper biblical context. You see, to the Jewish people, the term adoption didn't even exist in their culture. You read the Old Testament and you find that if if parents died, it was the responsibility of the brother, the uncle, to raise up those children, to raise up that family. And so you didn't have orphans in the Jewish culture. You had family members that would basically take and raise those children as their own. And so the term adoption appears, first of all, in the book of Romans because it is a very Roman Empire cultural uh, uh, what's the word that I want? Uh, cultural truth. It's something that existed that the Christians at Rome, the Christians in Galatia and so forth, they understood adoption very different than what you and I understand it today. Today, adoption is going out and trying to find somebody who's biologically somebody else's child and make them yours, typically orphans or unwanted children. The act of adopting or the state of being adopted in Roman culture was the taking and treating of a stranger as one's own child. The receiving as one's own what is new or not natural. Then, of course, theologically, it's God taking the sinful children of men into His favor and protection. Now, I, I misrepresented what I said. That's not Roman culture. That's Webster's 1828 Dictionary. Now, let me talk to you about what it meant in Roman culture. In ancient Rome, adoption had a powerful meaning. When a child was born biologically, the parents had the option of disowning the child for a variety of reasons. The relationship, therefore, was not necessarily desired by the parent, nor was it permanent. 
However, if a child was adopted in the Roman Empire in New Testament times, adopting a child meant this. Pay close attention. This is very meaningful. Number one, that child was freely chosen by the parents, desired by the parents. Now, my parents got stuck with me biologically, just like your parents got stuck with you. Just like you got stuck with your parents biologically. I got stuck with my parents. They got stuck with me. It's just the way that it was. Nothing can I, that I do can change the fact that I am biologically uh, my parents' son. And the same goes for you. But adopting in the Roman culture was not just a parent being stuck with a child, but rather a parent making a legal and public declaration that this is my son and I am legally adopting them. I am showing my acceptance, my approval, and I am making them full heir of everything that I have. And you know that when that happened, that child, when he was adopted, then he was heir at that very moment. He didn't have to wait until the father died. He possessed all that belonged to that adopting parent the very moment that that legal declaration was made. (laughs) I don't know about you, if you think about how this works with God, that He has adopted us, that spirit of adoption, that is why we can cry, Abba, Father. We can say, wow, that God could look down at me as a sinner, all the things that I have done against Him, all the things that I have done that have blasphemed His holy name, and He could look down upon me and say, I am adopting you, and I want the whole world to know that I claim you, and because you received me, and now I'm a full heir of everything that Jesus Christ has. That's meaningful, folks. That adopted child receives a new identity. Any prior commitments, responsibilities, and debts were erased. New rights and responsibilities were taken. Also, as I already said, the concept of inheritance didn't begin at death. It began immediately. Being adopted made someone an heir to their father and joint heirs of all of their possessions being fully united to him. Hey, Galatians 4, verse number 5 says, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Thank God for the meaningful doctrine of adoption. In conclusion, we've seen four meaningful doctrines of salvation. Redemption, justification, propitiation, and then adoption. I found this photograph to show you a picture that perhaps maybe some of you have seen before. A man by the name of Michael Judge was a Roman Catholic priest and he was a fallen victim of 9-11. He's shown here being pulled from the rubble by first responders. You can look at the face of this fallen man and I just wonder, had he lived, what do you suppose these men and all first responders for that matter, 
would have meant to him. I guarantee you, they would have meant a lot to him. They would have meant his life. As I look for pictures of rescued people from the from 9-11, you know what I found uh, almost, almost in every case, they'd show a firefighter or a first responder carrying someone out of the rubble, and in every case that I could find, it was a fellow first responder that they were rescuing. People who had went in and risked their lives, and there were many people who went in to rescue people who ended up losing their lives as well. They tried, they gave, they did everything they could to try to rescue people from the destruction of 9-11. I guarantee you, every single one that was rescued, every time that they pass by a fire station, every time they see a fire helmet, every time they see a New York City badge or whatever the case may be, I guarantee you that means something to them. But many of those rescuers were either killed or failed in their efforts. The next picture is a picture of an empty tomb. And someone who did everything that they could to rescue us from our sin and our fallen nature. Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, but death couldn't keep Him. Three days later, He rose again from the dead. He was successful in His endeavor to rescue us, to redeem us, to justify us, to propitiate us, and to adopt us as His children. Jesus was totally successful. He did not fail. He paid the price. He rose from the dead victorious, and He did it for you. Folks, now you know the meaningful, you know what these meaningful doctrines, you understand what they mean. But the question is, do they mean anything to you? They ought to as children of God. If they don't mean anything to you as they ought to mean, then perhaps maybe you need to do business with the Lord and get your heart right. If you're not saved, you can be justified. You can be redeemed. You can be favorable in God's eyes. God will meet every need of your soul that you have if you'll just trust what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. If you're not living righteous, then you're not living as if what Christ did on the cross has any meaning to you. Listen, repent of that selfish living and get your heart and your life right with the Lord so that these meaningful doctrines will mean something to you. Would you bow your heads and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank You for these doctrines. Lord, I thank You when we sing about them. I thank You when we read about them. I thank You when we think about them. It's such a joy to be a child of God. It's such a joy and a blessing to know that we are forgiving. It is such a joy to know that You look down upon us in favor and kindness and love when we deserve none of it. 
aside from what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. Lord, have your will and way in this invitation time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.